Please open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read an extensive portion of scripture tonight because I want to show you the, the next block in this book. And, and we're going to plunge into it, but uh, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2, I'm going to read all the way through 3.10. So from 2.17 to 3.10. And I think that it's very important to uh, sometimes read longer passages of scripture. The Apostle Paul says uh, to give attention to the reading of scripture. And that's not just reading it for yourself. Uh, there's something about the reading aloud of the scriptures and the hearing of other people. And before I read this, I will share what I've shared with so many of you. I, I regularly have couples coming up to me, either the ones that are just going to get married or ones that want to get back to what it was like when they first got married, and they say, could you uh, share with us, do you have any secrets? Uh, it seems like every time we see your wife, she's smiling. And What do you, uh, you know, what do you do with, you know, do you have a devotional book we don't know about? And I say, now I have the same one you do. I say, I'll tell you though, the key to fulfilling what the scriptures say is a husband's duty. Now, all these single people can just either dream about the day you get married or just check out for a little while, but just for the married people and those considering marriage, the scriptures say that a husband's duty is to sanctify and cleanse his wife with the washing of water by the word. Now, how do you do that? You put a Bible in the shower for her, keep one by the bathtub, and what do you do? No, it's, the Bible says that sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth, in John 17, 17. What's it talking about? There's something powerfully active in the reading of the word of God. In the ancient world, people never read silently by habit. They read aloud. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch, that's how Philip knew what he was reading when he was in the chariot, when he was running alongside in the desert. And he said, can I come up in the chariot? And the guy said, sure, come on up. And he knew where he was reading. How? Because people read out loud in the ancient world. Why did they read out loud? Because the purpose of reading was to know again what the person knew that wrote it. And so they tried to read it out loud until they comprehended it. Now, with that context, the washing of water by the word would have something to do with exposing your wife to the word. How do you do that? Well, a great way. I mean, it's very inexpensive. You don't have to buy the, the latest crusade uh, or, or walk through the Bible devotional guide, or you don't have to go to that expensive retreat up at the Marriott and, and have a marriage encounter. You can just read the Bible to your wife. Don't have her read it to you unless you're sick on your deathbed. Read it to her. Number one, you'll be a spiritual leader. Number two, you will be involved in something together. But some of those godly couples never do anything together. Spiritually, they talk, they pray, they never are involved. They're both ministering in different directions. They never do anything together. And did you know there's something profound about reading the Bible? You say, where? Anywhere. Just read it. We have an old Bible we got at the Goodwill. I couldn't believe anybody would sell it. It was a worn-out, old, original Schofield, just falling apart, filled with notes and underlinings. And it was a quarter. I thought, some giant owned that Bible, because it was literally falling apart. And we bought that for a quarter, and we just put a little marker in it, and every night I open it up, and wherever that marker is, I read the next chapter to Bonnie. And I think at something like 12.15 this morning, I was reading 1 John chapter 3, and she was like this with her eyes, saying, keep reading. <laughs> read that to me. You know, and, and I'm going strong at midnight. So, so I would encourage you to give attention, men, to the reading of scriptures. And uh, if you graduate from that, you can read it to your family. But I'll tell you, before you ever try and have family devotion, you ought to have time with your wife. And you ought to read God's word to her. Listen as I read the word of God to you. First Thessalonians 2, starting in 17. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, 
in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. There's this unexpected delay in his life. He was left alone at Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker mm, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day kept praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. Amen? And as they used to always say, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. We have learned that the theme of this book of 1 Thessalonians is expectant living, a life awaiting Christ that pleases him. In five chapters, the Apostle Paul gives five aspects of this kind of living. We already saw that chapter 1 starts by explaining what it means to be born right. In other words, what are the elements of true saving faith? And Paul lists those off. There are at least 15 of them in chapter 1 that describe what it means to be born right, how to know you have true saving faith. In chapter 2, we've seen that chapter 2 focuses upon being nurtured or discipled right. And if you want to know if you're discipled right, look at the pattern the Apostle Paul gives. And he was patterning the proper discipleship, both by his life as well as his teaching. Now, our text this evening, starting in verse 17, bridges the nurturing and leads us to the third chapter's theme, which is being anchored right. If you're born right and discipled right, then you're anchored right, and you won't drift off and you won't lose uh, your way. I hear so often parents say, well, my children lost their faith when they went away to that state school, and they just have never come back. Well, you need to make sure that they're born right, born again, that they've been discipled right while they're in the confines of your family, and that they have been anchored before you send them out. And make sure, as Hebrews says, that they have an anchor that is sure and steadfast and reaches within the veil. That means anchored to Christ. Well, Paul wanted to teach nurturing by example. He wanted to help the saints to be firmly grounded or anchored. And the apostle gives us a slice out of his very personal life and shows us what his life was like when he was on standby, when he was in those in-between times that are unexpected in life. Have you ever thought how valuable those unplanned times of unexpected waiting can become? 
It's like when someone doesn't show up for their appointment at their time, or when your car isn't repaired when you were told, or those layovers that, that we've all experienced at airports, or sometimes it's in the hospital in a doctor's waiting room, or perhaps it's just waiting to get picked up at work or at school, or maybe it's just old, plain old waiting time when things are just not going on. Paul models for us what the best use of this time would be. Now we need to set the scene. If you keep your, your finger here, first look at verse 17. Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 2, I was bereft of you. That means that he was orphaned. He was away from them. Then look at chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, when we can endure it no longer, we thought it would be best to be left at Athens alone. So we start this section remembering that Paul has left Thessalonica and he's hanging out in Athens alone. Now, turn with your finger here back to Acts 17 where we read at the beginning and I just want to show you the framework again and this is thrilling because God didn't write the Bible in a vacuum uh, he didn't write it in outer space it didn't come down to us on golden tablets like Joseph Smith found uh, at the hill Cumorah uh, where Satan hid them so he could start the Mormon faith or false faith but rather the Bible was, was breathed out in the context of people and cultures and geography and it's just the most fascinating thing to see that context it just it just doubles the whole message because you can see what they were going through and where they were and what they were doing chapter 17 verse 1 Paul came to Thessalonica do you remember when we started this series a year and a half ago where he was coming from he was coming from Philippi where he was beaten to the bone on his back and where he was imprisoned in in an inner prison in Philippi at the foot of the of the big hill of Philippi uh, the the Acropolis of Philippi at the bottom there's still into the side of that mountain is this this dungeon uh, place where the Apostle Paul was put it's one of those beautiful spots that's still there and he walks after this beating he's 46 years old uh, some of you are somewhere around 46 years old uh, and you know what it's like with the aches and pains but he had been beaten within an inch of his life he had no antibiotics he had no medical attention he he was put in stocks so he was unnaturally stretched through the time in the prison and now he walks 97 miles do you know how far 90 i mean few people have ever walked 97 miles maybe cumulatively but most of us don't set out to walk 97 miles that's how far he walked verse one they traveled through amphipolis from from philippi and went to Apollonia, that's a mere 30 miles. They went and came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And, and between uh, Amphipolis and Philippi is 30 miles, and between Philippi and, and uh, I mean, between Amphipolis and Apollonia is 30 miles, and then between Apollonia and Thessalonica is 37 more miles. And together, cumulatively, he, he walked 97 miles in that weakened condition. So that's where he is. And then, look at verse 10. He gets thrown out of town, and the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Why? Because it was heating up, and they were starting to have riots because of Paul's ministry. Verse 16 of chapter 17. And so Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Paul is waiting. He ministers from 17 to 34, and then if you look at chapter 18, verse 1, he goes to Corinth. So that's a slice out of his life, and he stays at Corinth for a year and a half. Now, and that's all in his second missionary journey. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 now, where your finger was stuck. So, Paul, in the setting of the verses we're reading tonight, is waiting at Athens. 
He's waiting, he's thinking, he's using his spare time, and we'll see that. And then he goes out and ministers, finishes his ministry, and goes on to Corinth. This passage then, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, down through 310, is his testimony. Again, he's showing them by example what a spiritual giant does when he has free time. I mean, what a, I, mean I think this is one of the more unique passages. And the more I read this, the more wonderful it is because we get spare time at different times in our life. Some people, the older they get, the more spare time they have. They just don't know how to fill all the time because they used to work 45, 50, 60 hours a week. And now all of a sudden they have free time. Or they can't sleep. That's another, as you get older, uh, some young people can't get enough sleep, and the older people can't seem to sleep. And, and you get to spare time, and, and, and maybe for medical reasons or whatever, you get spare time. What does a spiritual giant that we should emulate do? Seven things. Isn't it amazing how many things in the Bible there are seven of? Uh, I don't know if I see in sevens or if the Spirit wrote them in sevens, but they're just seven pursuits that godly men and women should do in their spare time. And if you're a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman, and if you're godly, Paul's saying, copy me. Now, it's interesting. We love to copy people. I, I remember it was only a few months ago you, you saw very few of those people that have those shoes that have kind of the light-colored stitching around between the sole and the shoe. You know what I mean? Doc, somebody shoes. Everybody has them now. We like to do whatever. I mean, I didn't even know what a Beanie Baby was, and I found out everybody knows what Beanie Babies are, you know? And, and we like to copy people. We like to follow them. I mean, if a sports star that's playing golf on the back of his hat or his shirt has a, you know, some type of logo or brand, everybody thinks they'll golf better if they wear that, you know, as if the shirt makes the golfer or whatever. But we like to imitate people, and Paul says, that's normal. Don't worry about that. But just imitate and pursue the right things that will count forever. So Paul directs his heart and mind toward his ministry to these saints. And he reveals to them the things he did while he was waiting and when he wasn't around them. What a blessed endeavor for us to model these things in our lives. For us to pursue in those spare times of our lives similar thoughts and actions for God. Now remember, as we do this, we're reading their letter. Remember that this was a letter Paul wrote to them. Remember that primarily to understand this book, you have to ask who wrote it, and it's the Spirit of God. You've got to get that settled, that you believe in inspiration. And then the second most critical thing is, who did the Spirit of God direct that letter to? Did you know not one of the books in, in, in this Bible was initially written to me or to you? It was written to somebody back then, to a group of people. And that's why you have to be very careful. Uh, some of our children weren't well, and, and Bonnie was home, and, and she turned on religious programming, which is really amazing, and, and uh, I've rarely ever seen it. And she says, you know, John, she says, I forgot what it was like. She said the first woman preacher got up there and preached that if you are godly, you will have a house on the lake like she has, and if you don't have one, you aren't godly. I said, what text did she use for that? She says something in the Old Testament to the Jews about conquering the land and seeing God's land. And I said, but that was to the Jews. Were she, was this a Jewish ministry to Jewish people in Israel? She said, no, it was out of Texas somewhere to people 
alive today in America. That's a travesty that people preach things they have nothing to do with the people they're preaching to. So this was a letter. We're reading their letter. But the Apostle Paul says, you all, not just them, but all of us should follow Christ like he does. So that's where it counts for us. And that's why all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Not every promise in this book is for me. I'm not a Jew. And a lot of the promises here are to Jews. Specific Jewish promises for a land and for a blessing. I'm not a Jew. You're not. Well, some of you are Jews, but not all of us are Jews, okay? So be careful when you're reading this book, because not every promise in the book is for you, but every part of it is profitable to all of us for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that we can be totally furnished, adequate for whatever the Lord has. Okay, here we go. Verse 17 has the first of these seven. And number one is Paul remembers those people in Thessalonica, listen, as his beloved family. The first thought he had. Now, now have you ever gone away on a trip? I can remember many times going on, on different trips and having to leave behind my family, whether for a little time or a long time. And, and I can remember at the airport, you know, there's all the hugs and kisses and the little notes and the, I'll see you soon. And then you get on that airplane and all of a sudden when you set back, you're not interested in that ridiculous airline magazine. You're not interested in the lady coming down and saying, do you want a magazine? You just sit there and you just think about your family. And usually I get my wallet open, I pull out all my pictures of my family and I spread them out and look at them on the, you know, on the little table before they make you put it up. And I just look at all those things and I put them all back. And that's what happens with Paul. He didn't have an airplane. He didn't have little pictures. He had family thoughts. Look what he says. He said, the saints were his closest family. Verse 17, but we, brethren, having been bereft, Orphanon. What does that sound like? That's a Greek word, orphanon. Can you think of an English word that came from orphanon? Orphan, right. He says, we were orphaned. We were bereft of you. Out of sight did not mean out of mind. Just because I wasn't with you, I still think about you. Now here's a test for whether or not you look at your body in Christ properly. When you leave tonight, is that the last time you think about these people? Until next week? Or if you're, you know, tied up at, you know, at the games or whatever and you miss a couple weeks, is when you're here in three weeks, is that the next time you think about this group? They're not really your family. We're related to each other. And if, if someone forgets their family, either there's a mental problem with them, they're sick, or it's not their family. You understand? This group is your family. It's my family. We're, we're related in Christ. We're related to all the other members of the body of Christ that are scattered around the world, but specifically, this local body, each of us has a giftedness that when we collectively gather like we are right now, when we all come together, we make an entire body. You don't have to have all the Christians in the world together to get a complete body. The Lord gifts each local manifestation of his body so that you have some, some speakers here, you have some quiet behind-the-scenes private parts, you have some servers, you have everything here. And that's why it's so important that we all come together. That's why it's very important for the elders to decide how often we meet. We shouldn't meet so often it kills everybody to meet. We shouldn't meet so infrequently that no one ever gets to know each other. And, and when the elders have prayerfully decided these are the critical meetings of the body, then it's kind of like dinner. At our family, we all eat every possible meal we can together. Why? Because that's a group of people I'd rather spend time with than any other group in the world. And I married Bonnie because she's the one person I want to spend all of my time with. That's what love does. Paul said, 
Look at this. We wanted you to know. Your brethren were bereft from you. Even for a little while, we were orphaned in person, but not in spirit. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Paul, number one, tells him this. When I have time, spare time, the first thing that comes to me is my beloved family. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. I want to show you a little bit about him. He says, remember me, verse 7. Remember, they're getting this letter. They're reading it like we are, or someone's reading it to them. And, and here they are sitting in their fellowship, wherever they met, uh, maybe a wealthier person's big house, which is what they usually did. They didn't have buildings like this that leaked. You know, they, they met in houses. And, and, uh, but I'm thankful for the building, and I think the leaking reminds us of how temporal everything is, but it's okay. But we, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother cares for her own children. Number one, he says, I, I think about you and my family like I'm your mom. He says, I feel like I'm your mother. Look at verse 11. I don't just feel like a mom. He wasn't merely matriarchal. He was patriarchal. Just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a what? What does it say? Father. Wow, I'm your mom and I'm your dad. Would his own children. He said, you are my family. And I have such a desire to see you. I did a study once, and, and if you're looking for new studies to do, an interesting thing to do with your Bible is to highlight every prayer in the Bible. Actual prayers, teaching about prayer, allusions to prayer. I have my prayer Bible. I collect Bibles, and each one I've studied something different in. And Boy, if there's ever a fire, I better go to heaven. It'll just break my heart, you know, all those Bibles. Uh, but uh, I hope it's written in my heart more than just in the Bible. But I remember my prayer Bible, and I remember studying what they prayed for. And I'll tell you what, what we pray for nowadays and what they pray for is really different. Because you know what the number one request was back then? It's right here. It's right here in verse 17. The number one request in the New Testament, prayer request. Now, if we boil down, and, and I'm not at all being critical, but if we boiled down our prayer sheets and compared it to Paul's prayer sheet, which is right here, it's often quite different. Do you know what the most often prayed for thing? It's the last line of verse 17. It says, we had great desire to see your face. The most often mentioned prayer request in the New Testament was Christian togetherness. Praying that they would be able to get together, that they would see each other, that they would get to spend time together, that they'd be able to be together. Those people constantly were praying that, that you would come safely, that we'd be able to meet, that we would be able to see each other again. Paul was praying for them. He says, in my in-between times, I think of you. You're my beloved family. Most people get depressed when they're not around their family. Paul got uplifted. When he was alone, God took away those closest to him so he could have loving thoughts about them. First of all, we should love each other so much we have those loving thoughts, and we should do it when we're not together. We should have loving thoughts and pray that the Lord will bring us back together so that we can show our oneness in Christ. Number two, look at verse 18. Number one, he spent time thinking about his family, his beloved family. Second, he spent time contemplating spiritual battles. Again, we often, you know what our number one request usually is? For either financial needs or health needs. I mean, would you pray for so-and-so, they're having, you know, they're sick or they're having surgery, and that's all good, but it shouldn't be at the top. It shouldn't be when we think about people, we think about their health needs or their financial needs. 
we should think about their family needs and their spiritual needs before we think about their health needs and financial. But you shouldn't neglect. If you neglect those other things, it says that you're not really ministering because people do need to, to eat and be well. But more than eating and being well, they need to realize that they're in the body of Christ and they need to be prayed for their spiritual battles. Look at verse 18. For we wanted to come and see you. See, that's a big desire in the ancient church that, that we need to rekindle. We just can't stand to be apart. They just, in fact, in the book of Acts, Peter's in jail. The angel comes and whacks him and wakes him up and says, come on, Peter, I, I let you loose. And he opened the doors. And you know what the next thing it says in the book of Acts? Peter went to his own. As soon as he got let out of jail, he went to the believers. Those were his own. You know, some people, their own are the golfing buddies they have, or their own are the, the hobby buddies that they have, or their own are the, the, the ladies that they do this with. They don't think of the church people. It's kind of like, that's over here, and my life is so much bigger than that, and they, they have so much going on. But, but the early church, the church was at the heart of everything that they did. And when they, when they had to meet, they went to their own. And that's what, look what he says. He says, I want, verse 18, I wanted to see you. More than once I wanted to come and see you, but Satan thwarted us. It's a very interesting word. The word is agkoptane. Isn't that meaningful to you? I'm just teasing you. Uh, Agkoptane is a very interesting, it's a military word, and it's a word for a roadblock that was placed uh, to stop an army that was on a march. It also is a word used in athletics where someone cuts someone off. You know, they're in the lane and they just stick out their foot so they trip or they, you know, elbow them or whatever they do. It, it just means to cut someone off. And in the ancient world, they would often, the, the uh, defending armies would find a place where there was a, a narrow gorge and they would roll rocks down, you know, there and kind of block it off because armies marched and they would have to climb up over and then they could shoot them with arrows when they were climbing up over. But if there was no roadblock, they would shoot back their arrows. But if you're climbing, you can't usually climb with arrows. And so they would put roadblocks in the way, or they'd knock a bridge out or something like that. And Paul says, look at verse 18, We wanted to come and see you, but more than once, but Satan encoptained us. He put roadblocks in. He, he knocked the bridge out several times. Now, lesson one of, of Paul's spiritual battle thoughts about them Paul was aware of Satan's activity. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Okay? For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know of your faith, lest by some means the tempter attempted you. Paul says, Satan puts roadblocks in. Chapter 3, verse 5. Satan tempts people. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, just across the page. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. It says there, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. What's Paul thinking about when he had spare time thoughts? He's thinking about the fact that Satan's putting roadblocks from him getting to them. And so he says, if Satan's putting roadblocks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray over that wall. And I'm going to pray that, that they will be kept from the evil one, that the tempter will not draw them away. Here's some other verses. Just think about Second 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, whose mind... The God of this age has blinded. You ever talk to your neighbor and they just look at you like this? They say, I don't understand that at all. What are you talking about? There, there's nothing wrong with their mind. Spiritually, Satan blinds them. And that's why when we had the outreach recently, 
we spend a long time praying. Why? That God will open the eyes of people. In fact, Acts 26, 18 says the first step of salvation is that you open their eyes. That's something you have to pray for, that God will open people's eyes. Uh, James, we saw this morning, saw his brother Jesus. He just didn't see who he was. He didn't see it until God opened his eyes. Ephesians 2, 2 says this, You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, the children of disobedience. I mean, you wonder why kids go around and spray paint our building like they did during our outreach week and put graffiti on it, God is dead, and all that stuff. And that was really a blessing because I thought, boy, we, we punctured the kingdom of darkness somewhere. If, if they're coming out here and spraying our building, we've hit a nerve. But why do they do that? Why do people randomly savage and do stuff? Chapter 2, verse 2 of Ephesians, they're walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. He's working in them. So what's Paul doing? He's aware of Satan's activities. We ought to be aware of activities. If you have decided you're going to do this for the Lord, and all of a sudden you have a flat tire and you run out of gas, and, and the road is out, and your car breaks down, it could be a roadblock, or it could be you don't maintain your car properly. I mean, I don't know. You have to decide that. But if it's Satan's roadblock, then you need to just go over the roadblock by prayer. See, what did Paul do? Did he say, oh, no, I'm in spiritual warfare. You know, I've got to... No, he says, I can still minister. If I can't come and visit you, I'll pray for you. I'll send someone else. Lesson two, Paul not only was aware of Satan's activity, but listen to this, Paul didn't blame everything on the devil. You know, there's a lot of people, they blame everything on the devil. Devil made me do it, everything else. Paul saw divine hindrances as well as diabolical. See, Paul, I mean, he was really a go-getter for the Lord. And what he's doing is, he's kind of like, um, I, I saw it somewhere, I was in a waiting room somewhere, and I saw this toy that was keeping all the little children in the waiting room. It was this little toy, and it would just go, and hit the wall, and it would go, and hit the wall. You ever seen one of those? It just kind of just goes whatever direction it can until it hits something. And that's Paul. Boy, he was going with the gospel, and it says in, in, in verse 6, he went through Phrygia, and it, nothing stopped him, so he kept going into Galatia. And then he was heading toward the province of Asia, and he was going to start heading east with the gospel. And the Holy Spirit said no. Stopped him. So he turned like this, and he went to Mysia. And he was trying to go through Mysia to get to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus said no. See, it's not just Satan that puts up roadblocks. I can't tell you how many times in, in the last few weeks that I have planned to do this, and something has held me up, and all of a sudden something else happens, and, and you know, I run into someone, talk to someone, share with someone, and when the day is done, I go, I'm so glad that the Lord didn't permit me to go that way so that I could go this way. What if I just decided I don't care? When faced with a mountain, I will not quit. I will cross it or tunnel underneath it. I'm going to do whatever this way. Then I would have missed the blessing here. That's why we have to, Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit. That's why Philippians says that let the Spirit of God, through the peace he brings, be the referee in your life. Let him blow the whistle and say, Oh! Stop. Paul said, I don't blame all my roadblocks on Satan. I see that God sometimes has other things to do in my life. Well, Paul says, number one, I think of you as my beloved family. Number two, I think of you as involved in spiritual warfare. And number three, and this is where we'll end tonight, I think with anticipation of your homecoming. 
Let's finish off the chapter. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, and we'll just finish off chapter 2. And I've already spoken on this many times, but it's a real precious part of the scriptures, 19 and 20. Paul says, I'm just anticipating your homecoming. He says, I don't know if I'll ever get to see you again. But, he says, I want to look at you as you will be. That's what he says. Look at verse 19. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? You in the presence of the Lord Jesus that is coming. Is there anybody you're dealing with and working with and ministering to and and discipling and they're just not making it? Then to not get discouraged, look at them not as they are right now, but like Paul did, as they will be. That's a comforting thought. You have a challenge with your children, look at them as they will be. Maybe not as they are right now. See them as what God's going to make of them if you'll finish the course with them. And, and see them as they will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus that is coming. Did you know that's what really encouraged Apostle Paul? He thought about the joyful homecoming when we'll be saved from not only the power of sin and not only the penalty of sin, but we will be saved from the presence of sin. And he says, you are my hope and joy. Wow. In the presence of the Lord Jesus it is coming. Paul looked at life and death and saw the ultimate joyous victory, listen, in the well done of God that he bestows on the life poured into others. Paul measured his life and he estimated his worth by others, by the only thing that he could take with him, which is people. I just love every time the Lord lets our boats get rattled by tremors in the financial markets or the real estate markets or the whatever, the labor markets, because we need to have those tremors so we'll start reallocating our investments into things that downturns and upswings and round flows can't take away from us. The only thing you can take with you to heaven are the resources you send ahead by sacrifice, sacrificially giving to Christ. And on that note, we had a real good friend once that, that had such a heart for the Lord that they wanted to, to invest some money in a, a mission, and they invested in a mission. It was one of those help the children things, and they didn't investigate much, and it turned out it was fraudulent, and the help the children thing was really a help me buy a mountain house thing, and the guy ran away with all the money. And those people were really discouraged because they spent a lot of their money in one of these feed the kids in India things. But... I told him, I said, did you know, you didn't lose that. Did you know that, that if you, with, with prayerful heart, invest your money in, in the Lord's work, and if, if some charlatan takes you, you still gave your money to the Lord, unless you overlook the wise counsel of others that says, man, that guy's a crook, don't get near him. But, but if you give, you know, I actually met someone once, and they said, well, I don't want to put that in my will, because what if, you know, they don't keep serving the Lord in ten years? I said, well, that's up to the Lord. You know what I mean? You should start planning right now to send it ahead and give your resources to God. But, but other than that, the bigger thing, because we only have limited resources that we can give because we have to live, what Paul said is he was sending others ahead. The only thing to take with him are people. And so he said this, I have an anticipation of my homecoming when I'm going to see you. I have this list of people. I keep them in my Bible, of people that I've led to the Lord over the last however many years I've been keeping track of it, and I pray for those people, and some of them, I haven't seen them for 10, 15, 20 years. But I'm going to see them again someday. 
And they are my hope and my joy and the crown of my rejoicing because I took someone with me. Are you? Are you even asking God for someone to take with you? Are you studying so you can answer them? Are you planting seeds in their life? Are they your hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Well, Paul thought about the Thessalonians as his beloved family, number one, in his spare time. Secondly, he was involved in spiritual warfare and thought about them and prayed for them. And finally, he anticipated homecoming with them, the reunion in the presence of Christ. We should do the same. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would make us the supreme blessing in the lives of some others by letting us be a part of their spiritual pilgrimage, either giving them the wonderful words of life and having someone else be involved and, and actually lead them to Christ, or, or we be the one that, that's involved in the watering, the planting, or seeing you harvest. But make us a blessing this week to our loved ones, to our families. I pray for a group of men in this church that will just decide they're going to spend time every day reading the Bible to their best friend, their wife. I pray for some children that will just decide that more than all the other allurements, they're going to spend time in your word to have a transformed mind. And once we get through that, I pray that we would start using our spare time to invest in the most precious commodity in the universe and be a blessing to souls. Lord, lay some souls upon our hearts and love those souls through us And may we always do our part to win those souls for Thee. Help us to be a blessing. For Jesus' sake, amen.